Once again, you were picking up the pieces. The storm had destroyed the boats docked, the shanties scattered along the beach, and much of the history of the town. You knew no one was coming for help, and the helicopters which flew overhead showed no interest in what remained of the town. You wondered how many of those pilots had come from small towns like this. Did they feel anything knowing people were likely still alive here? Everyone had to choose sides when things started falling apart, and you got that. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't, and a lot of people just wanted peace, even if that meant the loss of freedom. People just want to provide for their family. But what about when your family is no longer a concern for the side you've chose? The side you've dedicated your life for in hopes of a better future? At least better than what you imagine the alternative to be. Where was the line drawn? For the Blackhawks overhead, that wasn't a concern. They weren't search and rescue helicopters, so you knew something was up. For now, you couldn't extend the mental bandwidth to think about what might be happening in the city that had been your home for a decade. You wanted to feel bad for it, but you couldn't even work up the illusion of sympathy. You looked back towards the beach, the waves rocking the scraps of lumber and picture frames scattered across the sand. Destruction like this was absolute. The remains were irrevocably destroyed. There was no salvaging the materials, and there was no source for new materials. How could there be? The rest of the world had forgotten you existed, and the towering, intimidating pines that had heaved and lurched in the storm were far too big, and you wouldn't even know where to start preparing them for use. Every task that had seemed difficult before now seemed insurmountable. Generations of knowledge, lost, left you incapable of living in the most basic sense, and with every moment it felt like you'd gotten a grip on things, and that for a moment they were no longer unwieldy, nature, like a bull in a china shop, destroyed everything within reach. Charlie sat on a pile of rubble, near a home that had been vacant. He told you that it had been the house he'd grown up in, a house he had imagined despite its sunken floor and windows that refused to close completely, he never imagined it would be turned to rubble. Not in his lifetime, anyway. You picked up a scrap board, looked around, and put it back down. It was overwhelming and futile to start over. To start here, at least. What benefit was there anymore? Many of the homes were lost, and most of the homes remaining were uninhabitable. Siphoning what gas was left in the cars around town, you were able to get a dozen cars filled, and what remained of the food was stuffed into the trunks as people sat two to a seat. Further south, there was marshland on an inlet that had been mostly abandoned 30 or so years ago as the fishing industry was paralyzed by overfishing and the regulations that followed. The towns that had beaches continued to justify their place in the world, while these small towns on the periphery were all but abandoned, relegated to stories of better times and a colored version of history. 
Charlie was confident there was an opportunity to start over somewhere safe from the gaze of the city and from the power of the ocean. The caravan pulled away, the ocean still lapping away at the remains of their history, washing it away into nothingness. You hoped he was right. Hey folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us on Patreon if you'd like to help us covering the cost of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or early access or anything like that right now. We do believe knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we'll do some critiques on various subject matters and talk about those things not only from an intersectional lens, but also within the context of this podcast. Societal collapse, reconstruction, agriculture, those types of things. Our first episode of bonus content is up, and take a listen to the following clip as an idea of what we're doing. We see things on the internet and we imagine them to be true and then we try to recreate them. And the first image was never true. So we're, we're creating an image of an image of something that never existed. Uh, and simulation. Yeah. John. Yeah. You got me, buddy. Yeah. I didn't want to say it because I've said it like, I think in like three or four episodes. So I was like, I'm just going to say it a different way. Yeah. Uh, but I think you gave me the book though, didn't you? I might have. So, yeah, this idea that we try to recreate something that never existed because there's this internal deep urge to reconnect with nature in some kind of weird way. If you're interested and you are willing to donate $2, it's up on our Patreon. And if you're a cheap bastard like I can be after decades of growing up poor and dumpster diving after Christmas to get people's old TVs and shit, if you're looking just for the content, we'll have more up shortly. So maybe wait. We absolutely do not want people who can't afford to donate to give us money for content. We just want to provide something extra for folks who do feel like donating because we're not good at getting things in return for nothing. So if you can't afford it and really want to check it out, reach out to us and we'll figure something out. We're also working on getting some stickers done. We've already got the artwork ready to go. It's just down to getting them printed. And as I'm sure you know, right now is a little wild and everything is taking a little bit longer. And while we do enjoy making this content, there is about 20 hours worth of work that goes into each episode, so any support we can get to offset our actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. So please do go check us out on Patreon, if you can. Additionally, if you are using iTunes, please give us a review so more folks can find the podcast and hopefully join us on our journey. Reviews are incredibly helpful, and we appreciate seeing your time and effort to give us feedback and help us stand out in the vast sea of podcasts. Reviews help us rank higher in searches and also help us as we try to start incorporating guests onto the podcast, which means new exciting content for you, and you'll get to hear different voices other than the two of us rambling on and on. We've been growing fairly consistently. And that's pretty much entirely to the work you do by giving us reviews and telling other folks about us. And that's awesome. A review is just as good for us, if not better than donations on Patreon. So thank you all. We'd like to think what we're doing is unique and valuable. 
and our hope is that we can present the current challenges facing the planet in a new light that gives hope and a sense of liberation through understanding how we can individually and collectively make meaningful change. Lastly, we're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us there. We don't just post updates about the show, but we incorporate leftist and ecological history, as well as some foraging, hunting, and botanical knowledge that we find interesting, as well as some of the stuff that we're up to. And, of course, we've got memes. And if this is your first episode, we highly, highly recommend going back to the first episode of the podcast and catching up, since each episode springboards from the previous content. Further, this episode is the third and last episode of a three-part series, so we highly recommend going back two episodes and checking that out first, because without it, you'll feel like you're not getting the whole picture here. Lastly, this one's pretty dense compared to the first two of this mini-series. We're going to cover a lot of more technical details, and I tried to save that for the end so it had a good framework. Hopefully that makes sense to you as we go through the content, and if you disagree, I'd definitely like some feedback on it, because this was one of the more challenging episodes. I had originally expected this to be one episode and it turned into three. So trying to segregate those details into ways that were digestible was a challenge and I didn't want it to be all over the map. So if you think it worked, please let us know so we can keep doing stuff like this. We definitely have a big content dump coming up on Silvoculture and I'm looking at doing that as a three or maybe four part miniseries. And a lot of that material overlaps with this, so we're actually not even really doing a deep dive on Silvo culture. So if this formatting works, please let us know. So as I said, this is the third episode reviewing the core function of grazing systems. And in the first episode, we cover the role of grasses and nitrogen fixers in building resilient pasture fields. We covered a bit about the role of both C3, cool season, and C4, warm season grasses, and how a basic understanding of how these grasses grow can help us optimize our pastures to maximize production. We further talked about grass management and how to successfully graze without overgrazing. In the second episode, we talked about the functional role of paddocks within a pasture and the mixture of art and science that goes into sizing paddocks and how we can use the fundamental knowledge we have in soil formation to be better about reading our landscape and predicting how quickly our paddock rotation needs to move. Further, we talked about how this is an evolving practice as your soil and pasture quality improves and how seasonality can impact this process. With all that out of the way, we're going to take some time to talk about some other aspects of pasture systems, starting with fence options. Generally, folks will think of the traditional split rail fence when you talk about farms, but Generally speaking, these aren't really used in any meaningful way, especially not in the systems we're talking about. The most common fence on any given farm or homestead is likely a flexible steel fencing called woven wire fencing, attached to metal posts that easily pop in and out of the ground called T-posts. The flexible steel fencing is usually sized for specific animals. For example, you may see horse fencing, which has bigger holes and is tall, or hog fencing, which has smaller holes at the bottom and is generally not as tall of fencing, and so on. This type of fencing is fairly cheap if you buy in large sizes, say about 70 cents a foot or so, compared to $10 for a wooden picket fence, 
which is only 8 feet, and woven wire fencing is a great semi-permanent option since, while it is a bit of a pain to move it, it's not impossible, and if it's something you're only moving a couple times a year, it's not bad at all. Posts are usually spaced 10 to 20 feet apart, depending on what you're fencing in and if there's going to be pressure on it, as well as the terrain you're fencing in. You can use a sledgehammer to hit the T-posts in. They don't need to look pretty, but if you're going to be putting in more than a few of these, get a post driver and you'll be saving yourself some time, effort, and probably some skin on your hands. That's some life advice I give you that I refuse to take, and every year when I start putting in T-posts, I say, you know what? I should buy a post driver. Someday I'll take my own advice. Personally, I like to use woven wire fencing far more than the other options for a few reasons, which I'll cover later, but ultimately I favor low-tech over high-tech when there isn't a significant difference in terms of time savings. The reason I'm bringing this up now is because we're going to jump into the hot new tech in agriculture, and I mean quite literally hot, electric fencing, called high-tensile fencing. High tensile is a type of smooth wire fence that is electrified to keep animals contained. As of 2020, it is probably the most widely used type of perimeter fencing. High tensile is very economical and works well for keeping livestock, especially bigger animals like cattle, contained. Electric fencing is designed to be extremely mobile, and just like woven fencing, it is designed with different heights, thicknesses, and spacing based on the animal the fence is supposed to be used for. For smaller animals like chickens and ducks, which is probably what most of you guys are considering or already have, and other animals that are escape artists like goats, a type of mesh netting can be used and is common on smaller farms. However, this type of fencing becomes bulky very quickly and because of that comes with a whole host of other requirements and most folks running more than 100 feet of this fencing will often use a quad or a tractor with specific equipment to pick up and move the fencing which with the additional costs of electrified mesh fencing adds up pretty quickly. The mesh fencing with the charging system and the grounding rod will typically run you about three bucks a foot so quite a bit more than woven wire, but still significantly cheaper and more effective than split rail fencing. One of the other benefits of electric fencing that I haven't really brought up at this point is the fact that it is a really good way to keep predators away from your animals. With an electric fencing, you can do things like chicken tractors without having to worry about guarding the bottom of the chicken tractor. Outside of the mesh netting, going back to that traditional electrical fence, Typically, two or three of the wires are electrified using a fence charger, looking more like traditional fencing than a netting. Subdivision or internal fencing might only consist of one to three wires between paddocks. Generally, this is decided by the types of animals you're managing. You want one around eye height for just about every species so that they can see it. So depending on what you've got in your pasture will dictate how many wires you have and where those wires are. Generally, the animals know not to try and escape the fencing once they've been shocked once, and the additional wires on the outside are to keep the wildlife away from your animals. Posts and high tensile systems are generally placed 20 to 40 feet apart, depending on terrain, with 4 to 6 wires stapled to the posts for perimeter fencing. Droppers are vertical posts that wires run through to add rigidity to the fence when posts are long distances apart or when fence travels over very uneven ground. They are on the fence but not placed on the ground with the advantage of being less expensive and less labor than installing an additional fence post. So, for example, 
you may have the option of placing a post every 20 feet without droppers, or you could space out the posts every 25 feet with droppers in between the posts. Depending on if you're working with an old farm system where there might already be posts in place might impact what way you want to go with something like this. One of the challenges of this system, particularly when it comes to the smaller two-wire system, is that if something spooks your animals, they will blow through the electric fence, even if it hurts them, and there's no physical barrier to keep them back like with a traditional fencing system. The major benefits of high tensile systems is the low cost and the ease of moving it. At less than 50 cents a foot all in, it's about half the cost of woven wire with the added benefit that it will keep your animals safe from coyotes or whatever wildlife issues you worry about. There's a reason why high tensile systems are the fastest growing systems in use today. It's affordable and more effective than just about every other system with some drawbacks as we've stated before. Post and rail, split rail, or board fence can also be used, but like woven wire, it is much more expensive than high tensile fencing. If you've got a lot of cedar, locust, or osage orange trees nearby, these are fantastic options for making your own system from wood on your land, and if you're coppicing the locust or osage orange, you can grow your own posts in bulk in as short as five years, making them extremely sustainable since most of them won't rot for more than 30 years. A single strand of electrified wire is often installed on the inside of these fencing systems to prevent animals from pushing through the fence or damaging fencing when trying to graze on the outside of the pasture. Alternatively, you can use a woven wire with a post and beam system to keep smaller animals from escaping and adding rigidity to your woven wire fencing. Obviously though, electric fencing is a challenge compared to other systems because it's not something you just install and it's done. When you're dealing with electricity, there's risks that come with it and inputs required. First, electric fences need to be grounded properly to carry the electric current through the fence wires. To ground an electric fence, you'll need to drive a minimum of three six-foot-long galvanized ground rods into the ground. Now, these ground rods also always need to be in access of the fence, so if you are moving your fence, either you need to have a bunch of ground rods placed wherever you move your fence, or you have to pull them up and re-sledge them into the ground. For these ground rods, you need to select an area that remains somewhat moist throughout the year. Separate the ground rods by at least one and a half times their length, then drive each rod at least six feet into the ground. Attach the first ground rod to a non-electrified wire, then hook the rods up in sequence. So it's a bit of work, but it's not something that's totally intimidating. I know when I was thinking about electric fence for the first time, I wasn't really sure where to start or what a lot of the terminology meant or how exactly you would do that without setting your woods on fire. So I just wanted to kind of give you guys a little bit of an understanding of what it means to set up an electric fence before you try to dig in and see all the different types and the names and the terminology about all the different parts. It's not as complicated as it might sound up at first. However, you do have some issues, one of which we haven't talked about, which is in regards to weeds and grasses, because these have to be controlled under your electrified fence. If you're working on a large property, this can become a major project with a weed whacker or a scythe. Additionally, this requires some additional planning because if you're moving fence daily or every few days, you'll need to prepare the space where the fence is going in advance so that you're not rushing to clear the space so that grass doesn't short out your electric fence, at which point your animals will just graze wherever they want to go. 
Now, I could probably do an entire episode just on the different parts of high tensile systems because there are various parts involved, various qualities, quantities, solar system sizes, system portability issues, and voltage concerns. But I think this at least covers the basics and the major pros and cons of each system. Part of why I use some limited mesh fencing on my property is because I wanted to try it out. And I do like it, but it can become extremely cumbersome quickly. And I have concerns about long-term viability in a world where supply chains might be disrupted. High tensile systems are better in this regard since the wires are thick and storing things like insulators and wire couplers are much more practical. That said, they're a bit more of a challenge for chickens, ducks, piglets, and depending on the landscape, even larger animals. Since I live near a highway, the idea that if my animals got past my fence, they could just wander off into the highway, I don't feel comfortable with that. And at the end of the day, I trust what I can see and I trust what I can physically touch. If a wire shorts out and I don't notice, then it's a free-for-all. There's nothing I can do about that, and I might not realize it for hours. So with that covered, let's jump into the conversation that we were having and focus on water. Once you've got your paddock sized and spaced out, especially when systems are still being sized correctly, creating water sources over a long-term plan can be a bit of a challenge. Remember that the goal is to provide water within 800 feet of anywhere in a paddock. The further animals have to travel for water, the more feed energy they'll expend on walking instead of putting that energy into production, and the less likely the animals will graze equally across the paddock. For most of us on small properties, this isn't going to be much of a problem, and I'd be surprised if anyone listening to this is going to have this size problem, but I did feel like it should be said. In terms of water, temperature does play a huge role in the amount of water that animals will consume day to day. As temperatures increase from 50 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit, water requirements can be more than double. Females that are nursing young will also have additional water requirements to be able to produce adequate quantities of milk. Forage moisture influences the amount of water required by animals each day. Sheep and goats can often meet their daily water needs when grazing lush forage in the spring. And once we finish this multi-part series on grazing, we're jumping into water management techniques on our property, which will highlight a variety of options for keeping water on your site as long as possible. So I'm going to be a bit light on this. Some areas we can look at for creating water sources is to have semi-permanent water systems in place using things like pond liners, shallow buckets, although size will be largely dependent on how many animals you're grazing. If you're looking to save money, it makes sense to make the watering container movable, but obviously that comes with more labor involved. Additionally, with moving watering systems, it's important to have access to water, which may mean long hoses or PVC piped water lines around your property, which can be tied into the water lines of your house or it can be tied into a rain barrel water collection system if you have the opportunity to pitch water or if you have a water pump attached to your rain collection system. Much like with the electric fencing systems, the larger your property, the more it makes sense to consider some ability to travel across your property on something like a quad or a tractor that can move equipment quickly. Since I'm trying to stay generally low-tech because of the goal of this podcast, it's a reminder that we need to be very thoughtful in our planning in order to minimize the need to create this type of workload. 
like I said, in the next episode, we'll be focusing on ways to create water systems on your property that will limit your need to require such an infrastructure and that will be dependent on a number of factors on your property that are in some cases out of your hands. In all likelihood, chances are we'll be looking at a mix of infrastructure like PVC piped water paired with various water harvesting techniques. The main thing you should take away from this, including this entire podcast, is that there's no simple plug-and-play system. There are examples of successful variations of all types of grazing systems. As a grazing manager, this allows you a certain amount of independence and autonomy. However, with that independence comes the responsibility to learn and experiment to see what will work on your property. Before we move on to discuss types of grazing systems, we need to define what we mean by dry matter. Dry matter is an important concept to understand when it comes to grazing management because it is the term we use to describe yield in pasture. We spend a lot of time talking about biomass and the role of pasture species in making useful biomass, but we haven't talked much about any measuring techniques other than the minimum heights we want to aim for when grazing. Consumption can be estimated by using the weight of the animals multiplied by a percentage figure. So, for example, cattle and small ruminants, that is, goats and sheep, will consume approximately 2.5 to 3% of their body weight in forage dry matter per day. With that number, we can figure out exactly what our land can hold once we understand what our land produces. Managed grazing helps us control when and where our livestock are grazing, allowing us to ensure that we are feeding them the highest quality forage at the optimal time of production. Whether you have been studying or practicing grazing management, you've probably heard many terms to refer to various grazing management systems and philosophies. Some examples include continuous grazing, rotational grazing, intensive rotational grazing, management intensive grazing, strip grazing, mob grazing, high density grazing, ultra high stock density grazing, and holistic grazing. And the list could go on. To further complicate things, with the possible exception of continuous grazing, most of these terms are not well-defined and overlap. There's no cookie-cutter way to successful grazing management. If you're new to grazing livestock, start by getting the basics done right. Make some divisions in your pastures to allow paddock rotation and the rest periods for the forages. Use temporary fencing for interior subdivision. This will allow you to adjust how you set things up later in the season or perhaps next year. Work with the system, keep records, and gain experience. That's the only way you're going to get this figured out, because otherwise it's totally overwhelming. And as you become comfortable with managing the system, even if the system sucks, you can intensify your management when the time is right. If you're new to grazing livestock, start by getting the basics done right. Once you understand those fundamentals, you're going to be able to figure out what is and is not working. And with this podcast, you're figuring out the fundamentals. You're already there. There's four important areas to consider when you want to graze animals. Managing the nutrients of the plants grazed as well as the animals grazing, controlling the parasites among your livestock, prolonging your season as long as possible, and maintaining optimal sward or grass height. 
Managed livestock simply means you control where and when they feed. Paddocks are a primary tool for this. Managing these paddocks allows recovery time for various areas of the pasture. Generally, grasses and other forage are full of higher sugar, more digestible proteins at younger ages, but those dry matter we had talked about earlier is low. Ideally, we want to get the livestock to forage when the dry matter starts to accumulate, but before the edibility of the plants has begun to wean. You might think that if we let the grasses grow larger, this will provide more dry matter and ultimately a higher yield, but you actually will get a higher yield over the long term from foraging younger greens. However, we don't want to overforage because that will slow the growth of the grass. If you think back to the first grazing episode, we covered a bit of this. Also, if you think back to one of the earlier episodes on soil, we had talked about how many greens co-evolved with foraging species and actually stimulate growth from the process of being grazed upon. Again, our goal is to mimic nature, and we'll talk about that more and more as we get into different subject areas of actually doing these types of techniques. Continuing with what we had talked about in the soil episodes, we had talked about the idyllic farm pasture, with a cow chewing on some grass, moving here and there, but with the field at her disposal in what's called a continuous grazing system. Continuous grazing is the simplest grazing system. In the continuous grazing system, the pasture is not divided into sub-pastures or paddocks. Livestock have access to all the pasture area at any given time throughout the entire grazing system. The system involves a very, very low-level labor and management. It also requires very little expense in fencing materials other than the exterior fence. Furthermore, the water system can be minimal. However, the benefits kind of end there. There are many disadvantages to not rotating pastures. These include uneven grazing patterns, that is, spot or selective grazing, where cows, for example, might only eat the grasses that they like and leave everything else, and ultimately they overgraze those specific species, letting the weeds and the other things that they don't eat take over the pasture. Ultimately, what ends up happening is that you as the farmer need to kill all the plants in your pasture and reseed the entire thing. Further, because of this, you'll see what's called a variable plane of nutrition, which is the animals eat the best forage first, then move on to the lower quality forage, as well as uneven distribution of manure and resulting nutrient creep toward water and shade and where those species once existed that they enjoyed. This will change the pasture botanical composition over time, favoring plants that are not readily grazed and overly mature forage or severely overgrazed forage all in the same pasture. Now, rotational grazing can mean different things to different people, but it generally refers to dividing the pasture into sub-pastures, as we call them, paddocks. The basic premise with rotational grazing is that it will allow the pasture plants a rest period to regrow before being grazed again. There might be only a few paddocks through which livestock are moved every few weeks, or there could be many paddocks with livestock moved every few days. Today's temporary fencing materials make rotational grazing very versatile, easy, and inexpensive. The basic premise with rotational grazing is that it will allow the pasture plants a rest period to regrow before being grazed again. Compared with continuous grazing, advantages of rotational grazing include that livestock are on a more even plane of nutrition, the pastures are more drought resistant, and rotationally grazed pastures typically yield more 
and you will get more stable botanical composition in your pastures. Disadvantages for rotational grazing include that it requires more labor to set up paddocks compared to continuous grazing, and it is more expensive than continuous grazing due to the materials and infrastructure that are necessary. It's important to understand with rotational grazing, we don't typically work around a calendar year, but rather the plant characteristics of the paddocks. If you recall, we have various greens, some which accelerate their growth in different times of the year, and those will impact which paddocks should be forged. This sounds complicated, and to an extent it is. We're just trying to cover some of the really basic components of it, since I know it's not what everyone's primary interest is. Your first question might be, at what point is it time to move animals out of a paddock so it can rest? With perennials and cool weather annuals, they generally should not be grazed below 3 inches. Leaving 3 inches of residue keeps the plants healthier so they can regrow quickly. This further allows the plants to continue to grow their root mass, making them ultimately more resilient. Further, parasite larvae tend to stay at the bottom 2 inches of the grass, limiting exposure to those parasites to your livestock. Additionally, your plants generally start regrowth at around 5 days, so moving animals at that point will reduce extensive grazing on preferable species. Referring back to the parasite issue, generally parasites will take 6 days to develop from larva, further reducing the risk of parasitic infection. And this brings up that question of rest. We want the paddock grasses to reach an absolute minimum of 6 to 10 inches tall before we allow the animals back in for grazing. At this height, they have enough weight with enough sweetness to be attractive and provide a meaningful amount of calories for our animals. That said, it changes by species. If the species of grass you're growing, like, say, Kentucky bluegrass, tends to be on the smaller side, that may change your expectations of what is an acceptable height for grazing. That doesn't mean you'd want to graze below 3 inches, but you might be closer to that 3 inches than you might with another grass. For most parts of the country, during the spring, when the temperatures are cooler and you're getting lots of rain, you'll want to do what's called flash grazing, where the animals only come in for a short period of time to trim the extremely fast-growing grasses down, and during the hot, dry summers, your rest period may be up to 60 days. Strip grazing is a type of rotational grazing. It is the best method of managed grazing for stockpiled pastures, annual forages, and crop residue. In these types of forages, it is critical to subdivide the larger area to optimize the use of available forages and reduce waste. We can use single strands of temporary fence to subdivide larger areas of forage into strips. This type of grazing is common on larger fields of monocrops and is a good way to use up the green residue from a field. If you remember our episode talking about lignin and how long it takes to break down, the stomachs of cows will do that much quicker than the bacteria and fungi in the soil. Typically, we allocate strips for very long durations of a few hours up to three days. This creates a more competitive atmosphere, which encourages the livestock graze more of the available forage instead of being picky. The last one that I want to talk about is the hot new one, and the one I believe is probably the best if you can afford to do it, which is ultra-high stock density grazing. This is also known as mob grazing, and some other people will kind of come up with their own unique take on it that's a slightly modified version of it, but at the end of the day, they're pretty much all along the same idea. 
Although it's not completely defined, these terms generally refer to situations where animals are stocked at high, high density, from 500,000 to a million pounds of animal per acre in some cases. The herd is moved to new pasture very frequently to allow for very long rest periods for the pasture, 60 to 90 days, or perhaps longer. Some of the forage that is not consumed is trampled into the soil to build soil organic matter. Ultra-high stock density grazing has not been extensively researched at this point, but the handful of papers that have come out look pretty promising. Much like many new areas of research, it seems that it's better than the naysayers suggest and not quite as good as the proponents promise. But general proponents cite advantages including improvements in soil quality characteristics, a reduction in selective grazing, and a lengthening of the grazing season, all of which seem to be backed up at this point by the research done and the anecdotal evidence. The one major disadvantage is that it is very time intensive. It takes a lot of time to move animals every single day, especially for smaller herds, which may not be practical for people with off-farm jobs. Another disadvantage is the risk of not allocating enough new pasture when moving animals, resulting in suboptimum pasture dry matter intake by the livestock and possible reduction in performance. Both species and class of grazing animal may determine the grazing period. Since lactating dairy cows need consistent forage quality, the grazing period for them may be anywhere from half a day to two days. However, for beef cows, forage quality consistency is important, but not as critical as with lactating dairy cows. So longer grazing periods, say three days, where they eat the good stuff first and the less desirable stuff later, will suffice. Using your land resources to develop a pasture system that fits in with your total animal, forage, and crop program is an important first step in pasture management. Our goal is to provide quality pasture for the grazing animals throughout the grazing season. The first step to rotational grazing is to determine the forage requirements of your herd or flock, or FLIRD, which is a flock herd. We determine this based on something called animal units, and there's a whole bunch of deviations of what an animal unit is, so we're just going to talk about the basic animal unit, which you might see as AU. One animal unit is based on the amount of daily dry matter forage intake of a 1,000 pound dry cow, which is about 25 pounds a day. So one AU equals 1,000 dry cow. Dry matter forage intake varies by animal species and class and what stage growth they're in. However, there's a lot of variation to this methodology, as I said, and it can get pretty complicated on top of these by measuring species of grasses and forbs, density of those grasses and forbs. Since a lactating cow has higher nutritional requirements than a dry cow of the same weight, her AU is higher. For context, a bull is typically around 1.0 AUs, a sheep is around 0.15 AUs, an angora goat is around 0.12 AUs, a full-grown pig is around 0.4 AUs, a duck is around 0.01 AU, and a chicken is around 0.014 AU. By the way, the chicken and duck figures are pretty hard to find, so you're welcome. So say you have, like me, 20 egg-laying chickens and ducks, and let's say two goats at 0.12 AU, your total AU is 0.52, or half an animal unit, just about. Now that you know your total herd animal units, you need to estimate how many acres you'll need throughout the grazing season. 
Estimating the number of acres required to pasture a herd or flock depends on the feed requirements of the animals and the available forage produced. Since pasture growth is variable, it's dependent on things like plant species, soil characteristics, topography, fertilization, mineral content in the soil, temperature, we can only estimate the number of acres required for grazing animals. Actual acreage will also depend on pasture yields, dry matter intake, and efficiency of pasture utilization. I know, that sounded like a lot, but it really isn't. We're going to talk this through. So I'm going to use orchard grass and white clover with a summer-seeded brassica, the family of cabbage, broccoli, and cauliflower, to extend the season as a basic example of what kind of production you can have. Averaging out the year, you can grow about 1 AU of forage on just about 3 quarters of an acre from May through late November for your animals. For me and my 20 chickens and ducks and, say, 2 goats, they can survive on half of that from May through late November, and that's not including leftover fruits, veg, scraps, and green waste from my garden. Based on that, it sounds like I could run all of my animals on 3 quarters of an acre of good pasture land, right? Of course, it's not that simple. Like we said, certain species have a fast-growing season, and then a slow one. Trying to blend those different seasons by using a diversity of cover crops can help maximize each seasonal grower to help feed your livestock. As much as it is a science, we are required to make a series of assumptions, and we are better off attempting to overproduce on our field than underproduce, as we tend to underestimate our animals' needs and overestimate the health of our pasture. So, understanding this, now we can look at our paddock sizes. Paddock size depends on three things, the AU of the herd, the amount of available pasture, and your grazing period in a number of days. So let's stick with this example that I'm doing. We already know the AU of my herd, 0.52. Now, let's learn how to calculate the available pasture based on your desired grazing period. Then we'll talk about the grazing period, Available pasture is the amount of pasture present in a paddock at the start of grazing, minus the amount of remaining pasture when the animals are removed from the paddock. We measure it in pounds of dry matter per acre. Depending on plant density, typical temperate climate pastures seen from roughly D.C. to Maine have about 300 pounds of forage dry matter per acre per inch of height. So, there's a lot of factors that impact that, but for the sake of simplicity, we'll use this. Consult your local university extension school or the USDA NRCS for appropriate figures. The basic formula with this number is available pasture equals inches before grazing minus inches after grazing times 300. So what you're trying to calculate is exactly how much your grass was taken off times how many pounds per square acre per inch. So, if you turn a herd into a paddock when the pasture is 7 inches tall and plan to take them off when the pasture is 4 inches tall, they consume 3 inches. We multiply that 3 inches by 300 pounds of forage dry matter per acre, and we have approximately 900 pounds of dry matter available per acre. We can take that number down to what our paddock size is once we know what the pounds per square acre is. Now, I want to circle back to what an AU is per day because it is important to understand paddock sizes since you'll want your animals to forage based on a number of days. One AU is 25 pounds per day. 
So you need a paddock with 25 pounds per day of edible forage per AU. Again, with my small chicken and goat livestock, it's roughly half an AU per day, or about 13 pounds to be on the safe side. There are a ton of charts about pasture rates and days per paddock, but that's super complicated and something you can Google when you're busy trying to look busy at work. But I'm going to say I want to graze them for two days at a time per paddock. What you'll find online is they'll generally tell you how big of a paddock per acre based on an AU when your land produces 1,000 pounds per acre, so you'll have to adjust it to that dry matter figure we calculated for the Northeast, which was, for me, 900 pounds per acre. If that sounded complicated, all I'm saying is if you look up, I have two goats, how big of a paddock do I need to move every two days, that number is probably going to be based on a different amount of dry matter content calculation than where you live. So anyways, back to this example. For half an AU moved after two days, that is about 26 pounds, I would need about 1,000 square feet to feed my animals or a 10 by 100 foot space. To go back to what I said earlier, I have almost double the land I needed with one acre for my grazers. And that math checks out here. 1,000 square feet times 26 rotations in a year is 26,000 square feet. Again, that doesn't include the seasonality of species, but just to give you an idea, if you're looking to get livestock, how big of a space you might need for, like me, a couple goats and some chickens and ducks. What you'll generally find is that the more often you move your animals, the more efficient they are at foraging and the less space you'll need, but the more time you'll need to devote moving them. In the silvopasture episode, we're going to do a deep dive on this subject and how we can actually use multiple species to efficiently maximize these paddocks and actually, in some cases, triple and quadruple the amount of productivity we can get out of one site. So now that we understand the math behind the rotation for grazing to meet the animal's demands, now we have to flip that around and see the demands of the pasture to stay healthy. It's not just about keeping the animals healthy, but also keeping our grasses and soils healthy as well. The number of paddocks you'll need to keep your pasture healthy for a rotational grazing system will depend on the number of days your animals graze in a paddock and the maximum summer rest period needed. To calculate the minimum number of paddocks, you'll need to divide the maximum number of rest days by the number of days grazing and add 1. That formula is number of paddocks equals maximum rest period minus number of days grazing plus 1. This makes sense if you think about it, because say your maximum days of rest is 30 days in the driest part of the year. To give that paddock 30 days of rest, that means you need, if you're pushing through two days on each paddock, 15 different paddocks to go through before 30 days passes, plus one to make time. Rest periods should be based on the growth rate of the pasture, which will vary with the season and weather conditions. Since growth rate is affected by soil productivity and fertility levels, even within a pasture system, rest periods will vary. The best way to manage this situation is to have a flexible rotational scheme, moving animals to those paddocks that have reached their optimum forage availability. Keep animals off a paddock until it reaches its desired optimum forage availability. What this means is that you can't just move your animals around a pasture like the handles on a clock unless you've got significantly more paddocks than your minimum rate, 
which also means you're probably not actually getting the most out of your pasture. You'll be, in part at least, following the seasonal growth of species, as well as the various other pressures that can increase or decrease growth in various parts of your pasture. In the last episode, we had talked a bit about sacrifice lots and how they were useful in being a catch-all for a lot of different things that didn't need one dedicated zone. One thing we had talked about was that these can be great locations for hay, and this is something to start thinking about in the spring. We also talked last episode that the spring rush of growth usually means you can't get to all of the paddocks fast enough before the grass gets too long so that it makes sense to consider cutting hay. Spring management usually involves diverting some of the paddocks out of the rotation scheme and using the forage for hay or silage. This effectively shortens the rest period between grazings and improves utilization of rapid spring growth. How quick of growth are we talking? Obviously, every region is different, but in cool, moist area springs, your rest only needs to be 10 to 14 days, but if your springs are dry, you're looking at 14 to 20 days. Hot, moist summers are generally closer to 30 days of rest per paddock, and dry, hot summers are over 40 days of rest. What that means is that you need to at least give 40 days for a paddock to rest during the hottest time of year in many places. So for me, to have my animals move across 1,000 square feet for two days and move and have up to 30 days of rest for some of the fields, I would need to have at least 15 fields or 15,000 square feet to accommodate these rest periods during the summer, although we can have some dry weather, so closer to 20,000 square feet in the form of 19 paddocks and a sacrifice lot that could occasionally be grazed would be ideal. Again, this doesn't incorporate other factors like optimizing paddocks with certain species to maximize yield. This is really just a starting point to fine-tune an optimal system and to make sure that our grazing system that we've picked for our animals is compatible with our pastures to keep them healthy and sustainable. So really what you're trying to do is say, how quickly can I graze these animals to feed them? And then how quickly can our paddocks recover to make the system so that they don't get destroyed by my grazing system? So as long as your pastures grow faster than the grazing from the animals, you will never overgraze your pastures. And that's what we're trying to figure out with this math. So I know this was a lot of information and we're not done yet on the subject matter. I could have probably made this a four-part series, but I thought three was already kind of pushing it. The reason that I waited to drop the heavy information until the end is that I felt having framed up all of the other information, this would start to really tie the different pieces together instead of feeling like a brain dump on you the first time that you decided you wanted to learn about, about grazing animals and get totally turned off from the subject matter. So now you can look at these different pasture tools and the complex knowledge of soil and pasture management and now understand once we build up a healthy pasture not to break it into permanent paddocks and we can, with some very wide accuracy, estimate how many animals we can have sustainably on our property. If you wanted a herd of sheep, you can now do the quick math to see if you've got enough room once the pasture is up and ready to go. By understanding the soil and grass function first, we can work into a sustainable animal load instead of saying, say, I want 10 goats and 40 chickens and trying to make it work, we can say, this is what my pasture can handle and that's where you start. And of course, it's not even that simple anyway. 
the volume of forage required by grazing livestock isn't a static figure. It can either stay constant or, in broody herds, will increase as offspring graze larger amounts of forage as the season progresses. Therefore, the cool season pasture growth curve creates a problem. Too much forage in the spring and not enough in the summer. By harvesting hay and utilizing other resources, for example, tree hay, which we'll be talking about in the future, we will be able to create balanced systems that reduce or eliminate food inputs. So at this point, I think you've seen there are many good reasons to develop a rotational grazing system, including manure nutrient distribution. Having nutrients in the pasture where we need them is more economical than having nutrients built up in excess under trees or around mineral feeders that we then have to go and move around the paddocks. One of the goals of your pasture management system should be to deposit as much manure and urine back onto the pasture as evenly as possible. A good pasture management program requires little to no additional fertilizer application beyond what is contained in the livestock's manure and urine. The goal is that the animals deposit as much manure and urine as possible directly back onto the pasture as evenly as possible, reducing your workload. So how do we manage pasture to effectively distribute manure? Basically, manure distribution becomes more even as grazing pressure becomes heavier. The University of Missouri Forage Systems Research Center has done research on manure pile distribution on three, 12, and 24 paddock grazing systems. In the three paddock system, manure piles were concentrated within 150 feet of water and shade. Soil analysis showed that soil phosphorus levels were also significantly increased in the water and shade areas of the three paddock system. In comparison, the 24 paddock system had two to four times the density of manure piles in the main grazing area, and much less manure deposited closer to water and shade. Further, soil analysis showed that phosphorus levels stayed constant or decreased in the main grazing area. Manure distribution becomes more even as grazing pressure becomes heavier. The researchers estimated that in a continuous grazing system, it would take 27 years before every square yard of pasture had received a manure pile. In the meantime, the livestock continue grazing and removing nutrients and depositing them in areas close to water and shade sources. These figures clearly show that manure is more effectively distributed around the farm in a more intensive rotational grazing system. This has dual benefits through more consistent forage performance and significantly less nutrient inputs. Now, there are some things to consider for animal welfare when planning your species for grazing. To prevent problems with bloat, maintain alfalfa and clover concentrations in a pasture at 30% or less as high concentrations of legumes cause bloat most commonly because of the high amounts of soluble proteins found within the plant. Prevention is the key to managing parasites and begins with proper pasture management. Because larvae are found mostly in the bottom two inches of a plant, animals should be moved to a new paddock by the time the forage has been grazed down to three inches in height, which coincidentally aligns with our interests in keeping our grass healthy. It's almost like nature figured this out. Typically, larvae will go from the egg stage to the third larval stage in about six days, so moving animals every four to five days or less will also help prevent internal parasite infections in pastures. Another aspect of parasite prevention hinges on the rest phase for the paddock. 
Experts are somewhat divided on exactly how long is enough, but it is generally agreed that a long rest phase will help break parasite cycles. Another prevention option is to graze other species of livestock to break the parasite life cycle. For example, sheep and goats share many of the same parasites, but do not share parasites with cattle or horses. It's no surprise then, when we hear about all these different challenges on pastures, the requirements for soil rest, parasites, grass regrowth, and so on, that having dynamic multi-species systems that move quickly across pasture are the best for the long-term health of both the animals and the pasture itself. And at this point, we've only scratched the absolute surface of pasture systems. But hopefully, if this is new to you, it wasn't too intimidating, and maybe even something that sounded exciting. If you're interested in the multiple animal, multi-species grazing systems, when we get to Silva Pasture in probably about four episodes or so, we'll be covering a lot of that content and how to do that. If you check on YouTube, a lot of people will tell you they do it, but they don't explain how, and we're going to do that. Like I said, in my experience, this has worked. And like I said in the second episode, if you're curious but not ready to make such a plunge, consider chicken tractors as a stepping stone. The daily chore is not significantly less work than adding grazers, and it's a good test to see if you don't mind doing it when the novelty has worn off. With that, we're ready to wrap up this three-part series on grazing. Hopefully you've enjoyed it, and you felt like there was a lot more to the process than you thought. Further, I hope you have a better appreciation of where your meat and dairy comes from, and if you don't eat meat, hopefully you understand the complex web in which animals occupy as a part of building the health of the planet. Next, we'll be diving into the world of water management, which I promise is much more interesting and complex than it might sound. Until then, this is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac.